Good morning. It's good uh, to gather as the body of Christ as we've already sung different truths to our holy God. Just a very special moment just hearing the congregation in that last song as a great choir singing the truth, holy, holy, holy. So this morning, as we've already said at the beginning, we are starting a new series. Back in January, we had our first members meeting, and in that members meeting, we said that uh, we were going to work through all the way through John chapter 12, and after John 12, we were going to take a small break in order to address some different things. And then Billy, uh, Pastor Billy very graciously offered to preach a few times before that so that I could get prepared for the next series. Um, As many of you know, that didn't end up really working out. Just the last several weeks, we've had a lot of other things, and God orchestrated that, that allowed me to have that time aside, not to prep as much for this series, but to do other things that needed to happen in the body. But the question is, why are we doing this series? Why are we taking a break from what we normally do, where we normally pick a book of the Bible and go verse by verse through that book? Why would we pause from doing that to look at something more topical, like a series asking, what is the church? The reason is because we believe there are some areas in our church that need to be addressed. Now, before I get into what those areas are, I want you to know we are very pleased with our church. We are, we are so happy to see what God has been doing and so many lives transformed. And some of that stuff is very hard. Where sin is being exposed and needing to be addressed, that hurts, that's hard, but it's a good thing. So we're pleased with what is happening. The last several weeks have been an incredible thing of seeing people coming, volunteering their time, people weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Those are wonderful things. At the same time, we would by no means say that we have it all figured out, that we have unlocked everything there is to unlock about being a church that is happening according to God's purpose. Often the thi- those things will come up, the things that need to be worked on, and will come up as we go through book studies, but at times it's appropriate to set aside time to look at some specific issues. The four areas that both Billy and I as the pastors think that we really need to spend some special time looking at to are these four areas. Church membership, church discipleship and discipline, church elders or church pastors, and church deacons. Church membership, church discipleship and discipline, church elders, and church deacons. There are changes we want to make or principles we want to follow in those four areas, but before we just start changing things, before we start readjusting things, we think that we need to see what the Bible actually says about those areas because they're important. 
And you, as the congregation, have a responsibility to see that our church is actually happening according to God's word. Later, we're going to talk about this. In Acts 17, you have these Bereans who are hearing and everything. They're looking and seeing, wait, is this really what the word says? It's not just a responsibility of the pastors to make sure those things happen. It's a responsibility of the congregation to see those things happening. And so before we change them, we want to talk about them. We want to teach about them. But before we can discuss those four categories, we need to lay some groundwork. We can't talk about church membership or church discipline if we don't know what the church is and why it exists. So what is the church and why does it exist? So I'm going to ask Pastor Billy to grab the microphone and just pick some random people just to see what you would say to that. I'm not going to do that. My pastor growing up probably would have done that and I would have been terrified at that moment. But it's one of those questions that sometimes we talk about church things, like, what is the gospel? And we hear about those things a lot, but then we're like, wait a second. If someone were to just come up to me and say, define for me what the gospel is, we panic, we go blank, every single verse we've ever memorized is gone. But when it comes to the church, we kind of have the same issue. When we talk about the church, we often don't start the discussion about what the purpose of the church is, why God created the church, how he created the church, what the church is. What normally happens when we discuss the church is we kind of go into these three different principles, three different arguments, three different topics that discussions about the church often go to when we don't really understand the purpose of the church. The first one of those, that first principle, is the principle of practicality. What is the first thing, what is one of the first things we look at in order to, to determine if we should change something at our church? Does it work? That's always one of the first things we want to know. Did it work? Show me the results. Show me the numbers. When we consider new ministries, when we present new ministries, hey, pastor, I have this idea for something that we need to do, and here's why. Because my church, when I was growing up, they did it like this, and it worked. Now, it's okay to ask the question, does it work? But that's not the first question. The church of today is a church of pragmatism. Do what works. Now, what's the problem with prioritizing practicality? I mean, if it works, that's good. But here's the problem. Lots of things work. That doesn't mean we should do it. Just because something works doesn't mean it should be done. There are so many churches that work in a worldly sense but fail in a godly sense because they don't know what the church is and why it exists. They just want to know if it works. But that question is totally subjective. Works for what? The second principle we often turn to in order to, to determine if church is good is the principle of preference. Now, I know I'm not the only one that struggles with that. How often 
do we determine if something is working based on if we liked it? Have you ever seen a faithful ministry destroyed because the priority for that person became personal preference? I have. Men of God who spent almost their entire life serving God, but then towards the end of their ministry, a preference changed for them and everything changed. Because it wasn't happening the way they preferred. Not that it was happening in an, an, in an ungodly way, but it wasn't according to their preference. And so they did not respond in a godly way and they tarnished their testimony. Let's not point fingers, though. How often do we evaluate the purpose and success of the church according to our own preferences? Hey, how, how'd that event go? Ah, I, it wasn't good. Why? What, what happened? Did they not preach the gospel? Did they not hold fast to the word? Did they not proclaim Christ? No, they did all those things. They just, ah, the music was not good. The, the auditorium did not look the way I like auditoriums to look. I, I couldn't hear myself think. Or they sang all these old songs. This is not something unique from someone that's more conservative or less conservative. This is across the board. We all struggle with this where we determine success based on our own preferences. Again, the problem is our preferences are subjective. Could you imagine if our church was established based off of what we want? But if we don't know the purpose, if we don't know the design, that's what's going to happen. It's okay to have a preference, but our personal preference cannot take priority over the church's true purpose. The third principle I often see is the principle of pattern. It's the principle of tradition. Hey, why are we doing what we're doing? Well, because it's always been done that way. Oh, no, 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 pastor, you can't change that. Why? Well, we did it like that before. Okay. <laughs> Again, all of these things in their right place are okay. It's okay to ask the practical questions. It's okay to talk about your preference. It's okay to talk about the pattern, but they can't take priority. If the only reason we're doing things is because someone else before us did those things, that's not going to help us accomplish God's purpose. Should we consider, wait a second, how has the church historically interpreted this thing? Yes, that's important. But the only way you can actually see that is if you know what Scripture actually says. Do you see how easy it is for the discussion of the church to be founded on different subjective principles? This is why we must go back to the source. This is why we see so many churches failing, and they're not failing in a worldly sense. In a worldly sense, many churches are seeing huge success. We could find that success. We are tempted to strive after that success. It's not just other churches. It's something that we have to struggle against here. But are we finding godly success? Are we being faithful to God's purpose? In the absence of an objective understanding of our design and purpose, we turn to other principles like practicality, preference, and pattern. Other priorities arise when our true purpose has been obscured. So what is our purpose? How is the church designed? 
This morning, in your handout, there's a statement, and what we are going to be doing now is we're going to work our way through each part of that statement according to what the Bible says. Now, just an aside, this is not a working definition of the church. If we were going to have a working definition of the church, we would also want to include things like the right um, administering of the ordinances. That's not in this statement, but that is something that a church is called to do, that we both do baptism and the Lord's Supper. But what we have in this statement are different principles that must be a foundation for our church. If we're going to talk about other things like church membership, church discipline, church elders, church deacons, if we're going to talk about those things, we must understand these principles of the church. So here's the statement. The church is a people instituted according to God's will, saved through Christ's work, set apart for his worship, mutually edified by his word, sent to shine in this world, all for his glory. Let's say it all together memorized. I'm just kidding. That's a lot. And when I was sharing it to someone else, I I was talking to my brother about this, and he's like, oh, so that's the series. I'm like, no, that's the first message. (laughs) Oh, wow, okay, Uh, all right, good luck. No, there is a lot here. But if you look at these statements, every single one of these statements is not only a foundational principle for who we are and what we do, they're a logical progression. If these things are true, then these are the implications of who we should be. So let's look at the first part of our statement. The church is a people. Some of you have done studies on the word church in the Bible, and you're looking at that statement, and you might have already realized that's redundant. That's just saying the same thing. The church is a people, and that's true. The word church in the Bible is not a special Word. It's not a new word that Jesus created just for this organization. The word church is the word assembly. It's the word gathering. As time goes on, though, the descriptor became the title. And we see this in other places. I know not all of you have seen this. I only saw, I saw like a few episodes, but last year it was real big, uh, the Star Wars show, The Mandalorian. And if you watch that, or even if you didn't, you probably heard something, the way. This is the way. Now, that's not a special term. That's not a special title. But it described something that became the title. In the Bible, we see the same thing with the word, the gospel. The word gospel is not a special word. It's not a biblical word that the apostle Paul created, that Jesus instituted. No, it's the word good news. This is the good news. But the descriptor over time became the title. We are describing to you something that is good news, and we call it the good news, the gospel. The same thing happens with the church. The descriptor is, this is the assembly, but it's a specific assembly. It's a specific gathering, and it becomes the church. So as we're going through, why is this important? Because right now, first of all, in English, we don't get that connotation. Second of all, people no longer think about the church as a people. Here's just an easy example. How many of you, either yesterday or today, said, let's go to church? You don't go to church. 
you gather as the church. To go to church would mean that there is a location that is the church. That's not true. We gather as the church, and now this is the location of the church. And so this element of not understanding that the church is a people leads into a lot of confusion. Because now when we're talking about the church, we're talking about an organization instead of an organism. But we're a people. So let's keep going. The church is a people instituted according to God's will. One of the first theological truths for us to understand is that no people of God can create or establish themselves. Adam and Eve did not create themselves in God's image. Abraham and his children did not decide to call themselves children of God. The same is true for the church. The church is God's people and he establishes us. 1 Peter 2 verses 9 through 10 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God chose us. God made us a people for his possession. God called us. We were not a people, but now we are God's people. Just as Adam and Eve could not create themselves, just as Abraham and his children could not call themselves, we cannot institute or establish the church on our own. If we do not have the power to create ourselves, we also do not have the authority to call the church. It needs to be instituted by God, and that's what happened. Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who's talking? Jesus. What does he say? I will build my church. The church is not an invention of the apostles to make disciples. The church is not something that the early Christians thought was a good way to organize themselves. The church is not something the world created as a title for groups of believers. No, the church is a people instituted by God according to his will. In the Gospel of John that we've been going through, it says it in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This doesn't happen through our blood family ancestry. It's not by the will of the flesh. It's not by the will of man. It's only by the will of God. So if it's true that the church is a people instituted according to God's will, what are the implications? Well, the first implication is that the church is under God's authority. He created us. He called us. He chose us. Everything a church does comes from the top down. It's all according to what he says because we are under his authority. 
The second implication is that the church is called for his purpose. We are going to get into that purpose soon, but for right now, I just want us to reflect on this implication. If God instituted us, it was because it wasn't because he was bored. It wasn't because he didn't know what to do with all this time. Now that he's created time, he's got to do something about it. So, man, I'm bored. You know what I'm, I'm going to do? Let's create the church. That should be fun. Let's just see what they do with it. No. God had a purpose when he instituted the church. That means that what the church does must be determined by God. The church has a mission. The church has a purpose. A pragmatic approach to the church is fine so long as your pragmatic goal is aligned to accomplish what God has determined. The third implication is that the church acts according to God's design. It's not just what we accomplish, it's how we accomplish it. God gives us both the mission and the method. He tells us what to do, that's the mission, and then he tells us how to do it, that's the method. Mission and method. So if the church is under God's authority, it is vital that we take this seriously. Throughout Scripture, we see people that God has called, and yet they either focus just on the what to do or the how to do it. And you can't. You need both. Think about Exodus. The people knew that what they were supposed to do was to worship God. But they weren't so sure about the how to do it, so they go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, we want to worship God. That's the what. We know that's important. But the how we're not so sure about because we can't see him. We, like, we kind of want to do it the, the, how, how the Egyptians did it. So can you help us out with that? And that's when they come up with the golden calf. That's a problem. Even though the what might have been right, the how was wrong because they decided they were going to do it their own way. We see the same thing later in a difficult passage with King David. The Ark of the Covenant is not in Jerusalem. It's not in Israel. And so King David says, I'm going to bring it back. And he does this huge procession. He gets this huge parade of all of the army. He gets a brand new cart. No stops. Uh, You know, we're just going to do this. We're going to glorify God. Let's do it the best. Brand new cart. They put the, the, the Ark of the Covenant on the cart. It's going. And some of you know this story. The oxen stumble, and a guy puts his hand out to stop the Ark of the Covenant from falling, and what happens? He dies. What? God, he was doing a good thing. He was stopping it from falling. He he was holding, he was wanting to show honor to you. What's the problem? When God told Israel how to design the Ark of the Covenant, he designed it with rings on its side so that it would always be carried. He told them how to worship him. The problem was David had his own idea. He said, no, 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 I got something better. Let's do it this way. And the result was someone died. God cares how he's worshipped. In Isaiah, we talk about they worship me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. This is where we come to John 4. We must worship in spirit and truth. Both what and how we worship are determined by God. 
The church is under God's authority. The church is called for his purpose. The church acts according to God's design. Here's the problem. It's great that God institutes the church according to his will. The problem is knowing God's character and man's corruption. How? If God's character is holy, as we sang earlier, if holiness is to be set apart from sin, if that's God's character, and we understand that our condition is a condition of corruption, how can we be God's people? Because the church is a people saved through Christ's work. The theological truth is that on our own, we cannot be in God's presence. His holy and righteous character demands that our sin be dealt with. In our fallen condition, because of our sin, we cannot be God's people. Our corruption is the antithesis of his character. We are dead in our sins, and we deserve eternal death to be eternally separated from him. That is the truth of humanity. And look, in the passage that we looked at, 1 Peter, it it addresses that. Once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy. So what changes, what allows us, for knowing our corruption and knowing God's character, what bridges the gap? John 1, 12 through 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, whoever does that is saved. But how? How does that work? Does God's character, did God just say, you know what, I'm not going to care about it anymore because I really want my own crowd, I kind of want my grandstand of cheer people and they can kind of do this thing. So, you know what, for this group, I'm just going to look past their sins and they can be my people. No. God's character does not allow that. So what happened? Christ. Foundational truth of the church is that we are built on the truth of the gospel. It is Christ's work that saves us, and it is his work that allows us to be part of God's people. 1 Peter 2, 4-5, through 5, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The church is a people saved through Christ's work, that he died according to the scriptures, he was buried, he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures to pay for our sins. And those who receive that, those who believe that, are given the right to be called children of God. The church is a people through Christ's work saved. So what are the implications of that? Here's the truth. If you are not in Christ, you are not part of his church. That's a statement that is not comfortable to make. If you are not in Christ, you are not part of this church or any church. What does that mean for us? Well, it it means how we structure our membership matters. 
It means that the number one thing we concern ourselves when we are talking to someone who wants to be a member of this church is first, are you a member of Christ's body, have you been saved through Christ's work? If you have not, it doesn't matter if we add you to our roles. You're not part of the church. That is something that Christ decides. Now, we do have an obligation to affirm the faith of different people, and we do have church membership. And you know what? The Bible recognizes that sometimes we're going to get that wrong, where we are going to affirm the faith of someone who is not a believer, that there are wolves wearing sheep's clothing. And that is why the church is given the protection of discipline. That if there is someone who no longer is demonstrating that they are in Christ, we do not affirm them by telling them they are part of the church. It matters how we do our membership. The other implication is it, it matters the clarity in which we speak about the church. One of the popular things for organizations, not just churches, but churches as well, is there's these three words. Um, even Keystone College has these three words that are part of them, um, and different churches use them. And the order in which you place the words kind of demonstrates some of your values. The three words are belong, believe, become. And you can kind of put those in different orders, and depending on the order that you put them in, it's the values that you have for your church or organization. I went to a, a conference uh, several years ago, and one of the big things about the conference was that we as a church need to structure ourselves that people feel like they belong, then believe, then become. Now, please understand me. I, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt because the semantics of the argument that they were presenting was this. We want people to feel like they belong here. They, we want them to feel welcome here. And there's elements of that that are good. There's elements of that. If you are visiting here, I want you here. If you are visiting, I want you to hear God's word. If you're an unbeliever, this is a place where you should be. However, I don't want you to think you belong to the church because you don't. It matters for us to be clear on this. You can't belong to the church if you don't belong to Christ. One of the things that is important for churches to do is to draw a clear line of those who are inside of Christ and those who are out of Christ. We don't do that if we're not clear in saying, yeah, you're part of this church. Yeah, you're welcome here. You belong here. Well, wait a second. Do they? Are they a royal priesthood? Are they a holy nation? Are they a people called by God? We need to be very clear about these things. That the way to belong to the church of God is only through faith in him. We must believe first. You're welcome here. We want you here. But we want, don't want to deceive you into thinking you have something that you don't. Millions of people go to hell thinking they have something that they don't because they don't understand the true gospel. Let's move on. We've seen that the church is instituted according to God's will and saved through Christ's work. Both of those describe how the church exists. The next statements will deal with why the church exists. Why does the church exist? Because the church is a people set apart for God's worship. 
When we consider the why we exist, we find the answer back in how we exist. What we, dis- what we do is determined by who we belong to. Here are three simple truths about God and then the implications we see in the church. Here's the first truth about God. God is holy. God is totally set apart from sin. When God is described in the Bible, the angels sing of him that he is holy, holy, holy. What does that mean for us? The church is to be holy. We are set apart for God's worship. That is what holiness is. It means to be set apart. Ephesians 5:25 says, "Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her." Then later in 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that he might be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. Again, think back to what we've seen in 1 Peter. We are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a holy nation. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You To keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. All of those things are describing that we are to be set apart. Now we're going to look at this later, but that does not mean set apart in the sense of segregated. We do not avoid contact with the world. We do not run away from the world. We are set apart in character and in conduct, but not in contact. We don't run away from the church and say, no, no, stay far away from me. You might make me dirty. No, they can't make us dirty because Christ is the one who made us holy. Second, so the first thing, we are called to be a unique people. A set-apart people. Second principle, God is one. Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. As we read Scripture, we see that God's oneness, though, is seen in his trinity, in the unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the body of Christ, we are to reflect the unity of the trinity. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, it says uh, that I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, be holy. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In the bond of peace, and look at all the unity things. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. As the Father is perfect in perfect unity with Christ and the Holy Spirit, we are called to be a united people. And what unites us is the gospel. We are a unique people. We are a united people. Third, God is sovereign over all. Everything is under God. He is the king of the ages. He is universally Lord of all. What's the implication for us? That the church is meant to be universal. Now, let me just say very clearly, that's different from universalism. Universalism, everyone's going to be saved. All the people are going to come to Christ. That is not the truth of the Bible. That being said, we are meant to be universal. Why? Because God is over all. 
Look at what Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your people you ransomed people for, for God. From where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Because God is a universal God, he is over everything. The church is meant to be universal. It is not limited by space nor time. God is calling a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Shame on us if we are leading people to think that in order to be part of God's people, you need to look like us. This is a problem that has happened in missions for centuries where what was taken was not the pure gospel. Think of what Paul said, I came and preached nothing else but Christ crucified. And yet when we send people and to go and preach and they say, listen, this is Jesus, this is our culture, you need both. No, we are not saved according to our culture. Christ gives us a new identity, a new culture, a culture of holiness. That's what we're called to. And so if our church, if we are putting barriers up of like, okay, well, you're only going to be welcome in our church if, you add, if we add these other things that limit people from every tribe, nation, and tongue coming, then we are doing something wrong. This is our vertical purpose in the church. We are called to vertically relate to God through holy worship. The church is a people set apart for God's worship. But again, how do we do that? How do we walk as those set apart? The work of Christ saved us and he declared us righteous. And yet, we still struggle with the flesh. We still deal with sin. How do we walk as those set apart? We need to be sanctified. How are we sanctified? God gives us an incredible tool. The first one is the Holy Spirit. We are given the Holy Spirit to do that. But the Holy Spirit uses the body of Christ. We, as the body, are to be mutually edified by his word. The church is a people mutually edified by his word. As I've already said, our holy worship is a, our vertical purpose and call. And it is our vertical call and relationship that mandates our horizontal call and relationship. Because we are called to be set apart and worship God vertically, we are called to edify and evangelize horizontally how we relate with one another. Let's look at that first part of our horizontal relationship, the mutual edification. Remember, when we are talking about the church, we are talking about a people, plural, the church is a community. It's a gathering. It's an assembly. We do this together. The process of being sanctified is not meant to be done alone in a vacuum. But just as we saw in our first principle, we do not have the power to call or create ourselves in the same way we do not have the power to sanctify ourselves. We need tools. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the body. We have his word. John 17, 17 says this in, in Christ's high priestly prayer, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. If we are to be sanctified, we need the word. 
Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Christ washes us with the water of the word because the word is so effective. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What does that mean for us? What's the implication if this is the word that we're giving? It means that everything we do comes back to the word. It's not just a pragmatic approach. It's according to the word. When we corporately gather as the church, it needs to be about the word. This is what we do. We read the word, we preach the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, we see the word. We read the word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your, in, to, uh, thankfulness in your hearts to God. We sing. How do we see the word? Through the right administering of the ordinances. Luke twenty-two nineteen. do this in remembrance of me. Matthew 28, 19, baptizing them. We see the word as we perform what the word has told us to do. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. We read the word. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by, his appearing, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Everything we do here, everything we do in this gathering should be founded on the word. We read the word. We've done that this morning. We pray according to the word. We preach the word. We sing the word. We see the word. These are the values that we have. If it's a command for Christians to not neglect to gather as the body, then we want to make sure that when they're doing that, it's according to the word. We're not going to do fluff, not going to do other things that you're not commanded to be part of. If it's a command for you to be here, then it is my responsibility to make sure that what we're doing when we're gathered is according to the word. At the same time, though, it is your responsibility to observe what we're doing if it's according to the word. Acts 17, you are to be Bereans. If we start adding a bunch of other things that aren't according to the word, you need to say something. The protection of this church is not all on me. It's a body. We mutually edify one another. That doesn't just happen, though, on Sunday morning. We need to be mutually edifying. We are a people. We should be doing this throughout the week. And what basis do we use to do that? The word. Exhort one another. Encourage one another. Rebuke in love. According to what? The word. Sharpen with one another. According to what? The word. Why do our community groups stay around the word, around the preaching of the word? Why? Because that is the foundation of our relationship. It's according to God's word. That's the first horizontal call and purpose for us. We are to mutually edify the body through the word. But there's a second horizontal relationship we are called to. 
technically, we could accomplish the purpose of worship and mutual edification through the word in heaven. When we get to heaven, we will be set apart for his worship. When we get to heaven, we will be sustained and edified by the living word that proceeds from his mouth. So if we can do those things, if we can accomplish the purposes of the church in heaven, why not just go to heaven now? Why didn't God just call us up now? Because we have another horizontal mission that can only be accomplished here and now. Because the church is a people sent to shine in this world. Our second horizontal call and relationship is our call to this world. We are called to evangelize. We have a mission. Yes, it is God who instituted the church. Yes, it is Christ who saved us through his work. But it is God's design to use the church as a light in this world. God decides to work through sinful people. If you want to ask me why he does that, I don't know. But God's design is that the way that he proclaims his glory, his truth, is through his body. John 17, 18, we already looked at John 17, 17, says this, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are to be set apart so that we can be a witness to the work of God. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what are we to do? What is this horizontal mission? What does that look like? It's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, that universal element baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is calling us not just to make better disciples, but more disciples. If our church becomes this self-centered where we're just looking at our own belly buttons and unaware of the world around us, we're not actually accomplishing what God has called us to do. Beyond that, it's stupid. Who wants to look at their own belly button? We have a greater call. Yes, edify one another. Help one another. Walk more like Christ. Help each other be sanctified. Why? So that we can be a better light to this world. These three statements give us the specific why that the church exists for. The church is set apart for his worship. It is mutually edified by his word. It is sent to shine in this world. But all of those things fall under the greater umbrella of the church's purpose. The church is a people all for God's glory. Everything comes back to this. The purpose of everything is to glorify God, and the church is no exception. Everything is for God's glory. The church was instituted according to God's will for his glory. The church was saved through Christ's work for God's glory. The church was set apart for worship for God's glory. The church is mutually edified by the word for God's glory. The church is sent to shine in this world for God's glory. It all comes back to his glory. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.
let it be so. What's the implication for us? That before we consider what is pragmatic, before we think about our preferences, before we consider past patterns, we must prioritize the glory of God. And that's not something subjective that we need to guess how to accomplish that. It's objective. God has told us how the church is to glorify him. He has not only told us what our goal is, he has told us how to accomplish that goal. The question is, will we submit to him? Will we lay aside our pragmatic principles our personal preferences, our past patterns in order to prioritize his purpose. That is what we must do. If we are to be a church that glorifies him, we must follow him. As the worship team comes up, what is the church? The church is a people instituted according to God's will and saved through Christ's work. Why do we exist? To be set apart for his worship, mutually edified by his word, sent to shine in this world, all for his glory. To him be glory forever. Amen.